My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we're really glad that you're here with us this morning. If you're a guest with us, we're honored to be able to spend um, a Sunday morning with you. We're honored that you came and um, attend with us this morning. We're continuing on in our series that we're calling How People Change. How People Change. This is the second week of a three-week series. Um, after today, if you feel like you need to go back, if you weren't here last week to kind of fill in some gaps, please do that. All of that stuff should be um, on our website online. Um, let me now pray for us, and <clears throat> we're going to jump in. Father, I thank you for this time. Once again, I thank you for your word. I thank you that when we stand up here, um, whoever's preaching, we don't have to be overly creative trying to figure out what we're going to preach on or what kind of new idea kind of came into our mind this week, but we trust that your word is powerful and sufficient um, to change us. And so now as we kind of put ourselves under your word and, and trust that your spirit would change us through your word, I pray that you would do that, that you would change us, uh, change our minds, you would change our hearts, you would change um, our souls and our, 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 our wills that, that we're going to look at today um, as we uh, look at this passage from Jesus. Help us, Lord. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. American novelist David Foster Wallace in his commencement address at Kenyon College, gave this, this parable. He says this, There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet another older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and says, What is water? And Wallace's point with that, I think, really brilliant parable is that we can go through life oblivious to what is changing us, training us, forming us, having influence over us. We often go about our lives and not, are not even aware of what is happening. And it is for this reason that in the church, as we're following Jesus, we need environments and practices that train us to love God. We need those things. Jesus says this about love in verse 28 of Mark 12. He says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked them, Which commandment is most important of all? The scribes asked him this. Jesus, Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. So when the scribe asked Jesus this question, what he was asking is, how, how should I worship God? How should I be devoted to God? That was essentially the scribe's question. He wanted it to be narrowed down to him and wanted it to, the things to be simplified because he knew Jesus had these answers. And Jesus answers with this idea of love, kind of in two ways, right? Love the Lord God with all of who you are, all of your capacity, all of your faculties, and love others the way you would want to be loved. So the question becomes for us, is how do we grow in this kind of love? 
How do we grow in this kind of love? Do we just try harder? No. Do we just believe the gospel at a deeper, deeper level? That's a little closer, but incomplete. We need to be trained. We need to practice being good lovers in the directions that Jesus is asking us to. We need to have environments where we are trained in our love for God and toward God. And oftentimes we tend to default to thinking that if we can just change what people think, and maybe you say this about yourself, or or change what people know, if we can just get the right information into them, they will become disciples. It's as simple as that. If they know enough or they know the right things, they will automatically make right decisions and make good choices. But I think we know from experience that just this isn't the case. If we were honestly, we, we know things that we don't often want to live out. We know better. We say that words like, you know better, or I know better than that. Author James K. Smith believes, along uh, with St. Augustine and many other kind of classic historical thinkers, um, that we are primarily lovers. We're primarily lovers, that, that we are more controlled by our desires, what we want, what we don't want, than we are by our minds. Smith goes on to say in, his, uh, one, in a couple of his books that our desires are shaped in large part by our habits. Like, for example, thinking to learn to play the piano or learning to drive. You practice thing, these things a lot, especially up front. You develop good habits around them, and these kind of things become automatic or second nature. Y'all, th- those of you who have been driving for any length of time know the feeling where you get in your car, maybe from work to go home or class to go home, and you just arrive at home. And you're like, what, what the heck just happened, right? I'm at home now. Like, you completely lost your train of thought. A little scary, right? But the point is it's become so ingrained, so automatic that you didn't have to think about it. You're just become the kind of person that naturally, when you get into your car, you can navigate your way all the way home without ever engaging your mind. It just happened. Why? Because there's a lot of practice, a lot of repetition, a lot of habits built in on the front end. Another way to describe kind of this idea in the context of worship and worship environments is using the word liturgy, this idea of liturgy. And liturgy uh, is defined as a common or public work performed by the people for the benefit of others. I'll say it again. Liturgy defined is a common or public work performed by the people for the benefit of others or other people. So when when we structure our worship, when we structure our environments as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we do so to make sure it's not a passive thing. Like, we don't just come into this environment and we're passive observers and we're not engaged, right? It's, it's active. Literally, liturgy is training our loves for God and towards God. And every church has a liturgy. Every church has, um, has a liturgy. Some are more intentional than others. Some churches have a lot of liturgy in their services. Some churches don't have as much liturgy in their services, Oftentimes we think of liturgy, maybe as as when we're trying to like think through it, is maybe it's too difficult for guests or newcomers to the church to understand. Like it's going to be boring or outdated. And this doesn't have to be the case if liturgy is well taught. It's full of warmth, spirit-filled. It can kind of serve as a map or a table of contents for those who are maybe new to this environment. There's benefits there. 
The gospel is clear. Liturgical worship can be both welcoming but also challenging in this context. In one of these books I've mentioned, James K. Smith, um, this book is great. It's, it's called You Are What You Love. I highly recommend it. But uh, James K. Smith uses the example of a mall. Um, I'll, I'll define what that means for some of you in the room. It's this big, giant building with stores that had its peak in the 80s. Now they're used for a multitude of other things, usually for what it was intended for. That's a, a mall, M-A-L-L, right? Mall, right? Um, he uses the mall as an example of this, but I'm going to kind of take what he, he, he kind of used the mall as like a, an example of how a, a, a secular environment actually trains us to be a kind of person, kind of in the area of consumerism and the whole experience of going shopping in a mall. There was just so much kind of built into that, and it was training us to love something. And he uses the mall as an example. I'm going to use OU football as an example in the same way he uses the mall to help us to understand that we are these kinds of people. We're, we're, we're hardwired this way. Gaylord Family Memorial Stadium is a religious site. It is. It's a religious site. Not because it's theological, but because it's liturgical. Wow. Come on. Its spiritual significance isn't found in its ideas or messages. It's in its rituals. Just like the mall, the, the Memorial Stadium doesn't care what you think when you walk in. It cares what you love, what you desire. You, you, uh, you approach it maybe on a, as the sun's setting on a Saturday night. The lights are already on. You approach it, and you see it's like something out of a movie. It's its own city. Lights are illuminating the field. And you scramble to find that coveted parking spot, making you feel like there's something important worth being here for. Because it's as ridiculous trying to find a parking spot, right? And pay for it, most often than not. And we notice the lights are illuminating something central inside that stadium. We'll call that the altar or the field. When you approach the building, you see brick and stone pillars anchoring the stadium, not unlike columns at the front of a typical church building. We give our offering at the gates to the priests, if you will, that with these, these pieces of paper or little barcodes on our phone that have been obtained through our hard work, or if we're fortunate enough, we've received them as a gift. For a guest or seeker, the numbers on the tickets are very important. They're like a map to want to find our place to experience the worship service where we're going to sit. And for seasoned pilgrims, they can find their seats based on habit. They know where they're going without even having to look down at their tickets or their phone. If one's senses of sight and sound aren't engaged enough, you have kind of assistant worship leaders to offer you food and drinks. They'll even come to your seats and ask you if you want something. You find your next seat next to the other parishioners who are dressed in the attire of the temple, in this case, crimson or cream. Once you're at your seat and you just escape into this other world, cheering for OU, so engrossed in the action on the field that time slips by. The outside world closes off. Your phone doesn't even work inside this stadium. Frustrating, right? You can't find a clock anywhere. You're kind of oblivious to what's happening outside the stadium. You can't even see outside the stadium in most of the seats. You're locked into what's happening in the temple. A kind of worship band sings Boomer Sooner, the stadium's version of the Lord's Prayer or Amazing Grace. The sheer repetition of the song sticks with you like a habit in your bones. If you do not like OU, 
you know this and you don't like this song, right? It sticks with you. You can't get it out of your head. There's intentionality behind that. It's a habit. It's liturgy. You sit back and watch the 18 to 22-year-olds or the high priests make offerings on your behalf, hoping these offerings are enough for the score to be in your favor at the end of the game. If the offerings were successful, you leave with a sense of pride and joy and take those feelings into the next week of work. You have a good week. Or did the next time you get to uh, uh, procure tickets to go into the stadium, you're excited for the next time because the offerings were accepted and they were good. If the offerings fall short, you leave angry and dejected, taking those feelings into the week, along with a high degree of frustration towards the high priests whose offerings weren't good enough. See, going to Memorial Stadium is an environment that trains us by giving us a picture of the good life, what it's like being a part of a winning team or a winning culture, um, being able to sit together and belong, wearing the same kind of attire as the rest of the people. You feel like you belong to something bigger than yourself. It's a religious experience. It doesn't do that by giving you information. I, it's not, you're not going to have the same effect by here's just read a book about the history of OU football. That doesn't work, right? Explaining to you what the game is like. Here's how these things work. That's not going to produce the love for the game. This trains our loves through experiences, through the liturgies, through everything that's happening outside the stadium and inside the stadium. I won't get my son, Jax, who's seven years old, to love OU football by telling him about it or even showing him the game on TV. I get him to love OU football by taking him to the temple. That's how he's going to fall in love with it. That's how, he's has, how his love is going to be trained to, towards OU football. But as a follower of Jesus, I hope that I can see these things, talk with Jacks about it, and the experiences will be a fun one, not a worshipful one, because we know that there's only one that deserves our worship, not OU football. And these things work to shape our loves precisely because we're liturgical people. That whole example we lay out, it does something to us almost without us thinking about it. You're not getting set down and, and read, again, a manual to kind of indoctrinate yourself to being an OU football fan. No, it starts when you're a baby, if you live around Norman, you have parents that went to OU, and it t- continues on to, uh, through adulthood because of experiences, these types of environments. See, the liturgy liturgy of Christian worship can train our love for God in ways that counter these influences of our culture. By using liturgy in worship, I keep mixing liturgical and liturgy in worship, we are seeking to train people's love according to the gospel, wanting to train our loves in the gospel. Rather than being defined by the world and informed by the world, whether that's a mall or OU Uh, football, other sporting events. I mean, there's a lot of things you can think about in this way. Hopefully, you'll be more aware of this. Concerts, just being a student on OU's campus is a formative experience. A lot of liturgies around being an OU student, being a part of a sorority house or a a fraternity house experience that. Uh, The the, uh, Amazon website, just going on Amazon, kind of that consumeristic hit or high of dropping things into your cart. All of these things are worshipful environments, and they do something to us. And so being a disciple of Jesus isn't just about what we believe or know. It's about our desires, this deep stuff of who we are, what the, the old uh, Puritans called our wills, the deepest place, our, our, our operating system. And this is what Jesus was saying when he mentions heart, 
and soul along with mind and strength. Heart and soul, the, the deep things of who we are as an image bearer of God. Again, verse 30 says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind with all of your strength. And it's in the context of worship our love is trained by liturgy. And where do we see this in Scripture? Really all over it, if you're looking for it. Colossians 3, the passage we looked at last week, 16 and 17, says this. Talking about, about when brothers and sisters get together. Here's kind of Paul's instruction. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly or deeply, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We also see this in 1 Corinthians. Paul spends much time instructing them on how to do the things when they get together. He, a lot of his rebuke is aimed at, you're doing things wrong. Most of his letters, Paul has this place where he stops and he wants to speak about how what they do when they come together. It's detailed. It's intentional. In Leviticus 9, we see a lot of this in the Old Testament, but in Leviticus, Leviticus 9, we see Moses giving Aaron directions for the first worship service in the tabernacle. I want to read these first six verses of Leviticus 9. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. So God has communicated Moses, and now Moses is passing this on to Aaron, who is in sense the worship leader for the tabernacle, for God's people. Verse 2, and he said to Aaron, look at this really intentional directions. Take for yourself a bull, calf for sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering. You see two kinds of offerings there, given exact details, both without blemish and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering. Verse 4, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord. And a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. See, when God was detailed in the Old Testament, we remember how detailed he was about how to build the tabernacle, how to build the temple, how things should be set up. Now he's speaking to what you should do inside of the temple, inside of the tabernacle. The sin offering was to be given first, symbolically cleansing the people from sin. Then the next kind of second movement of the liturgy came the burnt offering, which was burned up entirely to, satisfy, to signify the total dedication of the worshipers to God. And now that they were there, a fellowship or then a peace offering was offered, the third offering, and, and then having been cleansed from sin and consecrated to God, now, after this offering, the worshiper can now enjoy communion and friendship with God. God's presence now was among them because they did those first two offerings, and then they did the third offering. There's a rhythm, there's a cadence to how Israel was called to do worship. So we want a structure that shows God, that, that, that we want to create a structure that shows God is both who worship is for, and he's also by the means which, which we worship, right? He's the, he's the object, but he's also the means to which we worship. God is our focus. He, he, God is participating with us in worship. We, we experience him at a heightened level through the liturgical elements, not just the singing, which I think most, usually most of us think about when we think of a worship service, we often think of singing. That's one part of kind of the liturgical movement of a service, but not the only one. So now I want to briefly just now give you exactly what we do here at the church. So there's a slide. 
This is all of our, um, this is our weekly liturgy. And this is consistent. This is kind of our skeleton, like our template. And it, it could be slightly altered depending on a, if there's a special week or special occasions. We can um, maybe um, substitute some things. But primarily, this is what we do every single Sunday. These are the movements. I don't know if you no, kind of notice this or feel this when you're in here, but this is what we do. And I'm going to just briefly walk through these and how, this, how these things directly train our loves for God. Greeting your call to worship, right? That word ecclesia in the New Testament, that Greek word, is, is what church is translated as. Right? Is, ecclesia means church. It's translated as church. That means the called out ones. So it makes sense that we would start with God calling us into the worship of calling us into his presence. It grounds us. It reminds us why we're here. God's word, he's speaking to us, welcoming us into the worship environment. When you, after a, a, a hard morning getting up, often Sundays, if you have families really hard getting kids out the door on Sundays, we need this. We need the marker at the beginning of our time to say, God has invited us here. He's with us. He is the focus. Then we move on to adoration through song, usually two songs. Um, and this is, this is us just proclaiming um, how, how great we think God is. We're adoring him for who he is and what he has done. Um, and the most common form of adoration that we use, at least, is a song or a hymn. Now, I'll say this about singing, and a couple of things you may not notice. Um, one, this is a corporate thing. When we sing, it's corporate singing. So a couple of things we do to, to kind of highlight this is, one, you'll notice that when we sing, the lights are always bright enough so you can see across the room and see each other singing. We fervently believe that this is a corporate environment, and so we should see other people singing. When I come in and I don't feel like singing, and I'm sure some of you are the same way, there's just mornings where like, I don't feel it. When you see other brothers and sisters singing, you can kind of get in their wake and go along behind them and see them. Be like, they're feeling it, they're believing it, and it starts to do something to your heart. So we want to be able to see each other across the room singing. You also notice the sound of the band. We don't make it super loud coming from the stage. Why? Because we want you to hear one another sing. Okay? Doesn't matter how bad you think your voice is. God does not care. He cares about your heart, right? So we sing. We sing, and we want to hear one another sing. Those are some of the things we've done to create an environment of corporate worship, not a bunch of individuals in the room just singing to God on their own. Well, that's a part of it, right? But this is a corporate thing. We sing together. Next is confession. Confession is a vivid reminder um, that we haven't yet arrived, it's the time to, that we humble ourselves and remember we're still in desperate need of God's grace. And it's also a time where we can free ourselves from the guilt and the shame and, and, and the proclivity to hide and pretend like we're someone else. So we can actually, at the, fairly early in the service, we can come clean. Say, I haven't been who I've wanted to be this week, God. And we kind of set ourselves free from feeling like a fake early in the service. Because most of us are fakes. We, we, we've struggled this week. We come in and we say, God, I need your grace. I'm going to be reminded of your grace. This is confession. That's followed immediately by assurance every time. It's a reminder that the gospel, of the gospel that conveys the good news of, of God's forgiveness of our sin found in Jesus. It always follows confession. Because it kind of reestablishes our relationship with God. It, it, God hasn't gone anywhere. But right when we've confessed sin, that's, that can be hard. We can feel, feel distant from God. A reminder of the gospel and our assurance kind of helps us feel that relationship is strong again. Again, God hasn't gone anywhere, but that's for us in that moment. 
Then we do usually another song, same as above. And the worship leader will close that time in prayer, often be, thank, be thanking God for what he's done so far and asking God to continue to move throughout the rest of the service. And the next is announcements, right? Announcements is weird because this is the one that <laughs> it's really hard for us, right? We want to help people know, hey, this is what's going on with the church, but we're actually going to try to move um, less announcement kind of oriented stuff, more towards stories, more towards things to, to celebrate, maybe things to pray for, more intercessory prayer in this window of time, right? That's the one that's a little bit different than maybe some of the stuff you see in Scripture, but that's, we do that every Sunday, so I wanted to mention it. Next is meet and greet. This is the one maybe you just think it's a time filler. It's not. This, that we are physically enacting what it's like to be a family. You know, this is the only time in the whole service once we start that we actually face each other. Right now, you're, all your eyes are facing this way, and that's going to be the case for the majority of the worship service. Meet and greet, you actually get to turn and look at each other. You get to shake hands, give a hug, say hello to, to somebody around you. If you're an introvert, you go to the restroom, right? Like all of those things, right? So this is, we want to be reminded that we've been welcomed into God's family. We've been welcomed. He is hospitable towards us. Therefore, we want to be hospitable to one another. There's intentionality, but behind why we do meet and greet. It's not just a time filler. Reading of scripture, the public reading of scripture, I should say. We, we separate this from the sermon intentionally so we can just hear the word being read over us. Every week, there, there's a text which a sermon, usually what the sermon is based on, read aloud, creating space for us to hear together, corporately, the word read. And we reflect on that. Then we have the preaching of the word. We strive to preach gospel-centered, Jesus-focused, um, expository sermons. We see the pulpit not as just a place for biblical instruction, but really one of the driving forces behind us being on mission as a church, right? casting vision, creative movement, right? shaping us in the gospel, shaping us like, clearly authoritatively hearing from God through his word and showing the relevance of, of the gospel to non-Christians to make things explain things well, make sure the gospel's clear, know how people can respond to God's grace. Then the preacher closes it in prayer, and really what we're doing is we're praying that the Holy Spirit would work. The Holy Spirit's working right now as I'm talking, but I pray at the end that he continues to work. He takes what God, God's word has said to us, and he continues to produce something inside of us. Um, and it also just is a good reminder for us that we're not merely hearers of the word, we're doers of the word. And we want the Spirit to empower us to be doers of the word. So when we close a sermon like that, move into communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, kind of depending on what tradition you come from. Communion proclaims um, in word and sign the death, resurrection, and return of Jesus. And it takes kind of the mystery of the gospel that, Paul, that language Paul uses in Ephesians and makes it a, a present reality by engaging all of our senses. It's that time where it's truly the, the picture or the kind of the, the nonverbal illustration of the gospel on a Sunday morning. And we do this together. We kind of do it at the same time. We kind of come forward. And we know we, we have to line up in lines, but we do come forward kind of at the same time to do this together corporately. We respond with one more song, just again to continue to have this cadence of, of thankfulness and celebration of what God has done. And then we end with the benediction, or sending forth. It's where we speak God's blessing over of us. We hear God's blessing, and then we're sent back into the world to be disciples that make disciples. Notice we want God to have the first word, call the worship. We want him to have the last word, benediction, from his word. That's intentional. This is God-focused. <laughs> He's the one with the power, not me, not anybody else on the stage. The power is coming from God. 
the triune God, the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And we want that to be clear throughout the liturgy. I'll say it again. This is why it's so important to attend on Sunday mornings. And I'll say it's why it's important to not attend a church online. Now, before I get, there's, there's a time and place for that. Traveling, vacation, being sick, a pandemic. I get it. There are times when this has to be our only option. But it is always better, and you see that list of things we do. Things start to fall apart quickly when you're by yourself, in your living room, or even just as your immediate family, or even in your dorm room. These kind of, this liturgy falls, starts to fall apart. It becomes very individualistic once we start to move everything online. We're embodied people. We are humans. We live through this physical body, which is corporately, this is why this, this work of the people, liturgy, is so important. By reading scripture aloud each week, confessing our sin, hearing the promises of the gospel, celebrating Jesus' death and resurrection, celebrating communion, we're training our, our, our hearts, our souls in this, this cadence or rhythm of worship. And we are also hoping that modeling and building habits that train our desires in ways we can't always see. That's why I I, want to always caution with leaving one service thinking, well, I just didn't feel it that week, so God must have not showed up. Or, you know, that I just didn't connect with those songs, or I didn't connect with that sermon, right? Like every, I'm hoping that happens for you. I'm hoping God shows up in a unique way and does that. He should every so often. But what I want us to to see is that we're playing a long game here. Every week, these things build off of each other, little blocks building 52 weeks a year, that's a lot of doing this on a yearly basis. I want us to look back after six months, after a year, after five years. Maybe it's decades. Then you start to see God changing you. Not this one Sunday kind of wow moment, but it's the consistent weekly kind of showing up with the brothers and sisters to walk through um, a worship liturgy like we do, to hear God's word, to hear God's word speak, to sing, all of the things I just described. Right? This changes us over a period of time. Again, I pray every day that God would show, every Sunday that God shows up in a unique way. But I, I feel like we're so driven maybe by did he show up and how do I feel and not trust that God's word has power. When we do these things, they are doing something to us the same way a football game does, the same way Amazon website does to us, the same thing living in a fraternity or sorority house does to us. Without us not even thinking about it, these things are doing something. So they're pulling some, some, us to a certain directions. We want our hearts, souls, minds, and strengths to all be trained more and more to, 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 by the reality of the good news of the gospel. And we're reminding ourselves of the truth of who we are and whose we are. So an environment with gospel-shaped liturgy trains us more fully into a gospel-centered people. It does. So we want a structure that shows both that God is both who we worship and he's by the means by who th- that we worship. His spirit is, is helping us worship through this liturgy, right? Through us as a people, but he's also the subject. He's also, he's it, he's it. He's the focus. He's participating with us. So here's the, the, really the primary application. But there's a lot of assumed application here. But what I want you to hear is that when we come into this environment, I pray that we see this as an active environment. We are active participants in this thing that we're calling the liturgy week in and week out. We're not passive observers. We're active. We're active participants in this. Um, We need to remember that as we come in here week in, week out. The good news about it, we have some of this liturgy left today. So we're going to do communion here in a moment. And we're going to have a chance to sing one more song 
to, um, to, to adore, to, to, to worship with our mouths and hopefully our hearts, God. And then we're going to have um, the benediction time as well. So we have more to come so you can, you can kind of be an active participant in these things like we've talked about today. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful that we've been giving clear, if we look from Genesis to Revelation, there's a cadence, there's a rhythm that you've, you, you have your people do when we come together. There's some, different, there's some freedom there. There's the different churches maybe do it some different ways, but we believe that when we see God's word, there is intentionality behind what we do when we get together. And it's more than just three songs, sermon, two songs, see you later. Right? There, there, there's more to, to us being together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray that you would change us. I pray that you would change us today as a result of that. But I pray that we also see the long game, that we, we show up and we participate week after week after week, and we trust that your word and through your spirit that you would change us in that. That's why this environment is so important. It's not a show up just because we're supposed to. It's an environment that even maybe when we don't feel like it, that we trust that God's going to do something in us. Maybe not the wow thing, but the, the little thing that we don't see for months or years. Maybe seeds are planted that continue to grow over the next year as a result of something that was said today or that's said next week. Help us. Pray that your spirit would help us live this out. And we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.